morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to grab them and get ready to turn. We're going to look at a number of different passages this morning. We are concluding uh, what has been about eight weeks, what we're calling the thread. And what we have been looking at is how all of the Old Testament points to or finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And even more specifically, in this special Christmas edition of The Thread, we've been looking at how Jesus fulfills the offices, the roles of what is termed in the Bible as prophet, priest, and king. If you've been here the last three, uh, three weeks, and I encourage you, if you missed any of these messages, go back and listen to them. They all build on one another, prophet, priest, and king, all called by God, all anointed by God. And uh, as uh, the commentator Warren Wiersbe says, our Lord has three offices, that of prophet, priest, and king. When he ministered here on earth, he declared God's word as prophet and by inspiration of his spirit has caused it to be written down for our learning. Week one, we talked about how he is not only uh, delivering the word of God, Jesus is the word of God. He is not a prophet, he is the prophet. Then we came back and talked about Jesus as high priest, how he intercedes for his people as high priest in heaven, that he didn't just make the full and final sacrifice for our sins, but he is the full and final sacrifice for our sins. And this week, we're going to talk about how he sits on the throne and reigns as king, working out his purposes in this world, and one day he will return and reign on earth as king of kings, prophet, priest, and king. These are the three main avenues. These are the three main ways that God interacted with his people in the Old Testament. And today, we're talking about Jesus as king. Now, uh, I know that all of us share in different Christmas traditions this time of year that we look forward to. Many of you have family coming in town and uh, you're already getting hit up by your kids and grandkids. Are you cooking that dish? Are you getting that ready? Uh, they want it looking like and being like what they grew up in. And we all love traditions. One of my uh, favorite traditions is attending the Christmas Eve services with my family. Always love uh, being a part of these services where we get together with our church family. We're sitting on the same row together. We are uh, singing together. We are praying together. Uh, we are lifting our candles uh, together. There's just something about it. And I really encourage you that if this is not a part of your regular routine, our Christmas Eve services this year, we have two of them at 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock. Make this a Christmas tradition. We want this to be something that you look forward to coming to every single year. If you have family coming in from out of town, just bring them with you. And uh, we're going to have a great service, one hour long. We'll have something for the children in that service. They're in with us. We'll sing carols together. And uh, I'll preach about a 15-minute message just pointing us to Christ. And then we'll lift our candles high. And it'll be a great service, 3 and 5 o'clock. But one of those things that we'll do in that service is we'll sing Christmas carols. And as we sing these carols, many of the, the Christmas carols that we sing throughout this time of the year all carry with it this theme that we're looking at today, Jesus as King. For example, angels we have heard on high. Here's a lyric from that song, come to Bethlehem and see him whose birth the angels sing. Come adore on bended knee, Christ the Lord, the newborn King. What child is this? Here's the lyric, so bring him incense, gold and myrrh, come peasant king to own him. The king of kings salvation brings. Let loving hearts enthrone him. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Here's the lyric, O come, desire of nations. 
Bind in one the hearts of all mankind. Bid thou our sad division cease and be thyself our king of peace. I go on and on listening to Christmas carols. First Noel, O little town of Bethlehem, O holy night, away in a manger. What we just sang, all of them carry this idea of Jesus being born a king. Perhaps my favorite was written in 1719 by an Englishman, a clergyman by the name of Isaac Watts. He was a prolific hymn writer, wrote over 750 hymns in his day. He was meditating on Psalm chapter 98, just in his own time alone with the Lord. And he came across Psalm 98, verses 4 through 6. The Bible says this, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Isaac Watts read these two verses. And he wrote out this poem, which became one of the most beloved Christmas carols. We sing it every year, on repeat often. Joy to the world. And those lyrics, first verse, joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. Verse 2, joy to the world, the Savior reigns, it's kingship. Verse 4, he rules the world with truth and grace. It's one of the themes of the Bible. Certainly one of the themes of Christmas and the Christmas story that Jesus is king. And so my outline today is very simple. We're going to talk about a king is prophesied, a king was born, and a king will return. And then we're going to end with a practical question of application. I'm going to give you a Christmas word to think about as I have the last few weeks of this Christmas series. Let's begin by looking at a king is prophesied. Now, from the very beginning of creation, God has put within the heart of mankind a spirit of dominion. Recall the Garden of Eden. God creates every living creature that roams the earth, every creature that flies in the skies, every creature that swims in the oceans, and then he creates man and woman. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And look at this, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply thee and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so Adam, while not a king in the sense of sitting on a throne and having people come and bow down and worship him, he did have king-like responsibility and authority. And you know what happens? Sin enters into the world and throws everything into chaos and this whole idea of having dominion and carrying it out because of sin gets a lot more difficult, a lot more complex, and a lot more complicated. Order is no longer the rule of the day, but instead chaos is. And right in Genesis 
chapter 3, right after the fall of man, we're given this first hope of the gospel. We looked at this in the very first week of the Thread series. We're given the first glimpse that there would be a ruler to come one day who would restore order. He would bring back and recover dominion. The curse will be reversed. Genesis 3.15, God speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we talked about how this is a picture of the cross. The bruising of the heel is painful, representing the scourging of Jesus, the death of Jesus. But a crushing blow to the head is final. And that represents the resurrection of Jesus. And what we have in the very beginning pages of Scripture is this promise that one day, A ruler is coming. He will be the offspring of a woman. He will be human. He's going to reverse the curse. He's going to have victory. He is going to rediscover dominion. You keep turning the pages of Scripture and turn to Genesis chapter 17. God calls Abram to follow him. Changes his name to Abraham. Enters into this covenant with Abraham. And just listen to what the Bible says. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. That I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And Abram fell on his face before the Lord. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you, your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. Three times this promise, I will make you into nations. And then look at the last part of verse 6. And kings shall come from you. And he said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And what we begin to see here is this promise that God makes to Abraham's descendants. They will be the ones that will carry on the work of establishing God's rule, of establishing God's reign. It will be from Abraham that kings come and this everlasting covenant is set up between Abraham and his offspring and God. And again, it's just this thread that we see throughout the Old Testament that there is a king coming. Genesis 3, this ruler will be the offspring of a woman. It will be a human This ruler will come, Genesis chapter 17, and will be from the lineage of Abraham. Many of you know Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, who we now know as the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jacob, on his deathbed, begins to bless each of his sons. And when he gets to his son named Judah, again, we see this thread of kingship, this promise that a ruler is coming. Genesis chapter 49, 
verses 8 through 10. And by the way, the reason I read all of these passages of Scripture in detail is because I don't want you to think I'm making this up, okay? It comes right here. Genesis 49, verse 8. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Glimpses of a king. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Ever heard of the lion of the tribe of Judah? This is speaking of a future king to come. It's a a king prophesied. It's Jesus, the scepter, verse 10. This is an instrument of kingship, a symbol of a divine governmental ruler. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. You see it in nearly every book of the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. It's a prophetic promise that a star shall come up out of Jacob. And you see this language of a scepter again, this instrument of kingship shall come out of Israel in the context in which it's written. This star is a person of royalty who will deliver Israel from her enemies. And it, of course, is speaking of David, the king who is to come, but it looks further out. And it shows that this king will be the son of David. We'll see this here in just a moment. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 17. As you're turning to Deuteronomy 17, Moses brings the people of Israel together. It would be a moment much like right now, our church together, and Moses stands up and he begins to deliver a series of messages to the people of Israel. In Deuteronomy 16, 17, 18, this message is all about the responsibilities, the duties, the obligations of prophets, He talks about the ministry of the priest. He speaks of judges who will come up and deliver God's people. And then he mentions a time when Israel will elect a king. And listen to what he says about Israel's king. See, Israel's king is to be different than any of the other of the nation's kings. All the other nation's kings, they have final and ultimate rule. But Israel's king is always to submit to a higher authority, and that is God. Moses informs them of this. Deuteronomy chapter 17, starting in verse 14. Look at what the Bible says. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. God knew that Israel one day was going to make this decision, that they were going to reject God simply being their king. They were going to want to be like all the other nations and have an earthly, a human king. And so God says, when you do this, there's some regulations, there's some limits that you're to put on that king. Verse 15, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Again, it's from the lineage of Abraham. They are to be of Jewish descent. Verse 16, only this king, he must not acquire many horses for himself 
or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, shall never return that way again. Israel's king is not to rely on any other government, on any other nation for their protection, for their peace, for their security. Again, they had a higher king. They were to, they were to report to God. They were to confide in God. They were to go to God, not to these other nations. Verse 17. Your king that you appoint shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. You don't put your trust in these things. You're trusting in the Lord. And when this king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. And the book of law, God's law, shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and in doing them this way his heart is not lifted up above his brothers that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom he and his children in Israel and so God says listen there's going to come a day when you want to appoint a king to be over you and you're going to want that king to be like all the kings of the other nations. But here's the limits. Here's the regulations. And you know what happens if you're familiar with your Bibles. Israel goes through a period of ups and downs, if you will. And certain judges are raised up. And they deliver Israel from their enemies for a time being. And then Israel revolts again and rebels against God. And God sends them into judgment and lets other nations conquer them. And another judge rises up. By the time you get to the end of the book of Judges, the Bible says everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And the people come together. And you know what they say? Exactly what God said would happen. They said, we want a king. We want someone to rule over us, someone that looks like us, that we can touch, that we can feel. And the prophet Samuel, he doesn't like this request. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, you see it here, the request, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And Samuel, the prophet of God, is heartbroken over this. Why are they rejecting you, God? And he says, this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds they have done from this day that I brought them out of the Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of a king who shall reign over them. And Samuel does warn him. He spends the rest of that chapter saying, if I give you what you ask for, it's not going to work out as well as you think. But the people don't care. They want a king. And so God gives them a king. A king by the name of Saul. And Saul leads them for a season he sins against the Lord. The Lord removes his hand from him. And he anoints David. David is described in the scripture as a man after God's own heart. To this day, David is considered the greatest king in Israel's history. And he makes a covenant with David. And I want to show you this covenant 
In 2 Samuel chapter 7, and again, my point in reading you all of these scriptures is to show you from the very beginning that God has promised a king and he is working his way to deliver on his promise. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, speaking to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And of course, we know who would build a house for his name, David's son, Solomon. Look at the promise in verse 16 of 2 Samuel 7. Speaking to David, and your house, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so there's this promise of kingship. And you can check it off a list down through the scripture. The king that is coming will be born of a woman. The king that is coming will be a son of Abraham, Jewish descent. The king that is coming will be from the tribe of Judah. The king that is coming will be a son of David. You read Israel's history. David dies. Solomon takes his place. Solomon dies. A civil war ensues. You have Israel to the north, Judah to the south. All of these kings warring against each other. And the Bible tells us out of all of these kings, only two from the southern kingdom were any good at all. All of the other kings disobeyed God, didn't honor God. And as a matter of fact, the scripture says they provoked the Lord to anger. And this is where you have the prophets who would come into Israel. And they would say in the midst of the civil war and all these evil kings where the people of Israel were holding out saying, when is God going to deliver on his promise? When is he going to give us a king? And these prophets would preach and they would say, a king's coming. Get ready. He will rule with righteousness. He will rule with justice. One of these prophecies, we read it every year this time of the year. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And look at this. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government... And of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And Isaiah shouted from the rooftops, a king is coming. A ruler is coming. Jeremiah, the same thing. Jeremiah 23, 5, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And look at this. He will reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. A king is prophesied. Starting in Genesis. 
And that thread is woven throughout the Old Testament scripture. You read it in the Psalms as well. There are 10 what we call royal Psalms that are listed that ascribe glory and honor and prayers and thanksgiving to the earthly king who is David, but it looks forward to this future king who will be the son of David. You can't read the Old Testament without reading of a king that is coming. And he will rule in righteousness and justice. A king is prophesied. But secondly, I want us to look at a fact, the fact that a king was born. Now you read Matthew 1 and Luke 3, the lineage of Jesus, and you'll see everything checks off the list. Jesus is the son of a woman's offspring, the son of Mary. He is the son of Abraham. He comes from the tribe of Judah. He is the son of David. The gospel writers went into detail to prove that Jesus is this promised king that was prophesied about for years and years and years. But here's what's amazing. This king that was born, this king that was foretold, this king that was prepared for, he came to this earth. And people missed it. Ever thought about that? All of the Old Testament points to him. All of the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And yet when he comes to earth, the people, for the most part, miss it completely. I mean, why is that? A king being born... Should have turned some heads. I mean, if he's a real king, there should have been a parade. There should have been a spectacle. There should have been a crown. There should have been some majesty about this thing. How did they miss it? It's because the way in which the king came was not what they expected. It didn't fit their preconceived notions. No dignitaries were notified. No royal ceremonies were initiated. There was no robe. There was no crown. There was no majesty outside of an angel's announcement to some no-name shepherds to get to a no-name town called Bethlehem. There was no fanfare concerning this king who was born. They were looking for a military leader. Someone who would deliver them from Roman occupation, Roman oppression. And yet God in Christ sends a spiritual leader, one who will deliver from the oppression of sin and the occupation of Satan. Power, according to this king, didn't come by conquering countries and leading armies. Power, according to this king, came by suffering by sacrifice, by serving 
others. And the people, because of the way in which this king came, missed it. All because it didn't fit their expectations. All because it didn't fit in their box. And you know, this is a great lesson that we can learn from Christmas. Is that when things don't fit our expectations, sometimes when we're going through tough times, I've talked to a number of people this last month who've lost loved ones. And they're experiencing their first Christmas without that loved one present. I've talked to people on the phone this week who received a diagnosis that none of us would want to be on the other side of a phone call and hear. This week, tomorrow, as a matter of fact, I want to encourage you, if you've lost a loved one in this past year, and maybe even if not this past year, maybe it's just kind of a blue Christmas for you and you're feeling a little lonely and a little discouraged because of a, a loss in your life, a loved one. I want to encourage you from 12 to 7 tomorrow, 12 p.m. to 7 p.m., we're going to open up our chapel for what we're calling a day of comfort. We did this last year, opened it up to our congregation, to our community, and you could come in at any time. You can spend as long as you'd like, as short as amount of time as you'd like. Our pastors... We'll be there, and when you come in, we'll greet you, and one of our pastors will just have some time with you just to share about your loved one. We'll give you some space just to think and pray, and then at the end of your time, when you're ready to go, you can go light a candle in your loved one's honor and just place it on the steps of the altar right there in the chapel, 12 to 7 tomorrow, a day of comfort. We hope that you'll take us up on it. And we offer this because sometimes around this type of year, the thought is, I didn't expect this. Wasn't supposed to be this way. And again, it's one of the great lessons of Christmas. That when things aren't happening like we would like, like we think they should, it doesn't mean that God's not working. Don't miss God. Because what he's doing doesn't fit your expectations, your preconceived notions. Don't think because there's not a throne, that there's not a manger. Don't think because God has not fulfilled his promise or come through on his word to you. And the way in which you have it scripted out in your mind, don't, don't miss the fact that God still He's still working. The people of Israel waited 400 years in silence. In silence, not a word from God. In 400 years from a prophet of God until Jesus came. He was born a king. The wise men knew this. The Bible tells us they came from the Far East. We don't know how many wise men they were. We don't know how exactly where they came from. We don't know if they were really riding an elephant named Paige when they walked in. We have no idea, okay? But those wise men came looking for a king. 
Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. They knew that child that was born was a king. And speaking of prophet, priest, and king, do you remember what the wise men brought to Jesus? The gifts they laid at his feet, they brought to him gold, representing his kingship. Frankincense, it was a a resin that you would uh, put in sacrifices, used as incense that the priest would burn in the temple, represented his priestly duties. Myrrh was a type of spice that was used in embalming. Also, it was used in mixing of drinks. And many believe that that gall that is referred to in the New Testament, that when Jesus was on the cross, that they tried to make him drink that gall. That was, that's what this was. It was a mixture of myrrh, symbolizing the prophet who would suffer bitterly on the cross for our sins. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh for the Christ who is prophet, priest, and king. Jesus was born a king. He died a king. Remember when he goes on the cross? Pilate hangs a sign above his head. It's written, John's gospel tells us, in three different languages. It's written in Aramaic, the native language of Jesus. It's written in Greek, the language of Rome, i.e. the world, or Latin rather. It's written in Greek for the common people of the day. Written in a language where they could all hear, this is Jesus. And what does it say? The king of the Jews. And that's why that thief looked at that sign. It's been called the first gospel track. And said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus was a king. A king is prophesied. A king is born. And then third and finally, a king will return. The first time Jesus came, he came in humility and no one noticed. When Jesus comes the second time, the Bible says every eye will see him. He will come in victory. This is an essential doctrine that we believe as followers of Jesus. The Bible teaches that one day Jesus will physically, literally return to this earth. Every eye will see him. One in nearly every 30 verses in the New Testament speak to the return of Christ. There are 300 prophecies that spoke of Jesus' first coming. They were all fulfilled. And there are prophecies concerning his second coming. It is going to happen. Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Hebrews 9.28, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time not to deal with sin. He dealt with that on the cross but he will appear a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for him Jesus is the returning reigning king and Revelation 19 promises that when he returns he will return with a name that says the king of kings and lord of lords he is our returning king he's king and so here's the question of application as we bring this message to a close, and I'm putting this in first person because 
Every single person here, every single person online has to answer this question for themselves. Jesus is the prophesied king. Jesus was born a king. Jesus will return a king. Here's the question that you have to answer. Is Jesus my king? Personally. Is he my king? Is he the Lord of my life? Ruling and reigning on the throne of my heart. When I talk about God ruling on the throne, I'm always brought back to that old campus crusade for Christ. I love that ministry. Um, they wrote the Four Spiritual Laws track. And I'm always, when I talk about Christ ruling on the throne, I, I always think of in that track, they always showed this image. One was called the self-directed life. The other was the Christ-directed life. The self-directed life, when self is on the throne of your heart, Christ is outside of your life, and all those little circles there represent the activities and priorities of your life. There's no order. There's chaos, confusion. Why? Because self is on the throne of your heart. But when we trust in Jesus, when we make him our king, and we enthrone him upon our hearts, then self is in its right place, bowing down before the king. And usually our priorities, um, our activities, there seems to be order. There seems to be a right relationship with others because we have a right relationship with God. It's a real life game of thrones. Who are you allowing on the throne of your heart? You want to have a wonderful Christmas? Give Jesus your life. You give him your life. Here's what he'll do. I've given you a word every week, a Christmas word to think on, to ponder as you leave. The first word that had to do with Jesus as prophet was the word wonder. I mean, just the fact that Jesus is the full and final prophet, that he is the fulfillment of all of the prophecies. You think about that, you wrap your mind around that, and it will cause you to wonder. Last week, we talked about Jesus as our priest. And when you think about Jesus, our high priest, who not only offered the full and final sacrifice for our sins, but his life, his body was the full and final sacrifice. And according to Hebrews 7.25, he sits at the right hand of God interceding for us as high priest. When you think about that, the word I gave you was joy. It should bring you such joy that you can just go into the holy of holies and pray anytime you want because of the work of Christ as priest. Here's the word. Here's the word for Jesus as king. It's the word peace. When Jesus is king, he brings peace. You read Ephesians chapter 2. If I had time, I'd read it to you. But it talks about how in Christ, God has brought us near and he has brought us peace, killing the hostility that existed between a sinful man and a holy God. When Jesus is the king of your life, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're facing, no matter how deep the darkness is, no matter how great the trial, when Jesus is the king of your life, you can trust him 
Because you know as king, nothing is outside of his power. Nothing is outside of his control. Nothing is outside of his dominion. And when we think about Jesus as king, it should bring a great deal of peace. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you for joining us online. We hope today's experience encouraged and challenged you. At Champion Forest, we are passionate about all kinds of people coming to know God, to grow in their relationship with Him and others, and then to go out and make a difference in the world. We would love the opportunity to talk and pray with you. To connect with us, just go to championforce.org connect. And hey, of course, we can't wait to welcome you on campus, in person, on one of our locations. We'll see you soon.